You're listening to Banter Radio. I'm Will Sherwin, and on this episode, I talked with Samira Singer, marriage and family therapist in private practice in Berkeley, California. Samira reads a recent writing of hers called The Game of Life. And in our discussion, we talk about working in Alameda County in community mental health. And I was excited to interview Samira because I haven't really heard the personal and political side of working in community mental health be put into literature this way before. Enjoy. The Game of Life I'm sitting at Portal, a beer garden near Lake Merritt in Oakland, California. It's early evening on a Friday, and the joint is filling up. I'm sitting with three colleagues, fellow therapists at the nonprofit where we all work, providing case management, therapy, and blood, sweat, and tears to the low-income children and families of Alameda County. The four of us are white, creative, artsy, and genuinely hope to help others when we embarked on grad school to become therapists, incurring tons of student loan debt in the process. Now, in our post-grad employed lives, we drive into dangerous neighborhoods and sit on dirty carpets in low-income apartments, playing with children, talking to parents, and trying our best to quell the suffering that comes with being poor. Child abuse, domestic violence, failing schools, hunger of the belly, and poverty of the spirit. These are commonplace. The shit is bad, we say, and folks don't want to know. If we have a little bit of wealth, we downplay it at work. You don't want to be wearing your nice pants if you're going to be sitting on a dirty carpet covered in dog piss. To the families that we work with, we seem to have everything. But in reality, most of us live in small apartments, pay huge monthly student loan installments, and can barely save for retirement. After work, tired and emotionally drained, we have little energy for art, music, social activism, or to feed the big hearts which motivated us to choose these careers in the first place. With this is the reality, it becomes humorous when a six-year-old black kid looks at you and says, You don't care about me. You just do it for the money. Sometimes you have to tell that six-year-old the truth. Honey, if I didn't care, I would be doing something that makes a hell of a lot more money. Well, to a six-year-old, you'd probably say it a little nicer than that, but you'd likely say it. It's true. I wouldn't be here if I didn't care. As we sit at the bar, our conversation weaves into the gallows humor of our work. We talk about the things that we can't talk about at cocktail parties, the things that we can't say when folks ask us what we do, because people don't really want to hear how bad it is right here. They don't actually want to know. We bemoan the general responses to the inevitable, what do you do question, and the difficulty we have in actually connecting with others about our work. The glazed looks people get, as you describe, I work with children and families on Medi-Cal in Oakland, Hayward, San Leandro, Union City. After the initial interest, the responses are predictable. The, you are a walking Mother Teresa response. 
Oh, that is such important work. That must be so hard. I could never do something like that. This response is followed by the cocktail party respondent. Number one, quickly walking away or changing the subject. Number two, telling an anecdote about a recent episode of the drug rehab reality TV show, Intervention. Translation, your very presence and the fact that you would be willing to talk with people of that class makes me very uncomfortable. Please stop talking or else I will feel terrible. The I can't even bear to listen response. Complete blank stare. Wow, that sounds like really hard work. Good for you. Followed by slap on the arm, pitying look, or indifferent stare. Usually followed by change of subject to, again, reality TV, or alternately, a story about a distant family member who is a meth addict or has a special needs child. So this is why we sit together at Portal on Friday night, because our blowing off steam is of a different variety and cannot be done in mixed company. And so we drink and bitch and talk about the way our lives have been consumed by the stories of the families that we serve. Because we love these families and their dirty floors and their struggles. Because we see beauty in the everyday and believe that our presence can actually make a difference. Because we see our work as something that chose us and not the other way around. Because certainly it is not easy, but also because we very much want to see these problems dissipate, to actually see things change. The Game of Life When I was a kid, I loved the idea of the game of life because I thought it would tell me something about how the world works. Upon first playing, I found that there was little in it to prepare me for what the world had in store. Instead of finding answers to life's dilemmas, it left me with more questions about how things worked and what life I was being prepared for. Inherent in the game of life is the American problem of class difference, how it exists, and how we pretend that it doesn't. The game of life goes like this. Choose a tiny colored car and place a pink or blue peg in the driver's seat. Then drive along the road of life, stopping on different colored spaces that say things like, You got married. Collect $300 in gifts. Choose a job or go to university. Buy a house etc. To win the game of life, you must make choices and accrue assets along the way, having children, avoiding bankruptcy, saving for retirement. The final success comes when the first player makes it to either government office or owns a large estate. Then you win. The game of life is filled with choices, and I assume its intention was to prepare kids for what was ahead. It was first published in 1960. Given how the world has changed, I would now like to suggest two new editions, The Game of Dwindling Middle Class Life for me and The Game of Life Working Poor Edition for my young clients and their families. Because there is not one set of rules, and the rules presented by the game for so many do not apply. There's this kid named Rico. I've been his therapist for a while now. He's eight. His dad has been in and out of jail since he was five. 
Rico's dad first went to jail after Rico called 911 to stop his dad from beating up his mom. I'm pretty sure Rico feels pretty terrible about this and thinks it's his fault. Rico and I have been meeting for therapy for almost two years, but we don't or can't talk about what he saw or the call he made. Rico has been brought to therapy because he frequently hits or yells at his mom and dad and has had some trouble at school. Rico's mother continually implores him to be nice, but no one is nice to Rico. In fact, he frequently sees how not nice adults are to him and to each other. I've tried to explain to Rico's mom that without the experience of being nice, it will be hard for Rico to know what this means. So far, this tack has not been effective in getting through to Rico's mom. I think she knows that disrespect has become a family value. It is so deeply ingrained in her understanding of what being a child is, of what having a family is, that this truth, that it will be hard for Rico to be nice if he doesn't see nice, makes the whole problem impossible to bear. Thus, she brings him to therapy religiously. This seems the best she can do. Rico and I meet each Monday at 5 o'clock and play with puppets and fly paper airplanes, and I make small, continual statements to bolster the failing self-esteem that comes from being berated by the adults in his life, of constantly being blamed for things he can't control. Part of the ethos of play therapy is that it is the play itself, the interaction, which is therapeutic. It matters less what you are playing than how you are playing it. The game closet at the clinic where I meet with Rico is clogged with all manner of play materials, art supplies, board games, Play-Doh, the gamut. It is meant to have options for all different kids at all different ages. In our training, we are encouraged to allow children to choose what they want, to explore what interests them, and are reminded that for children, particularly children who have experienced extreme powerlessness in their family circumstances, getting to pick what they want and have an adult follow their lead is, in itself, therapeutic. So Rico and I go to the game closet, and he picks the game of someone else's life. Internally, I cringe. There are so many reasons why I'm not excited by this choice. First of all, it's irrelevant and inappropriate for this population, I fume internally, to dangle out in front of them the lives that will not be theirs, or mine either for that matter. But also I cringe because it's big and cumbersome and has a lot of pieces to set up. And this requires me to read lots of cards with vocabulary words that Rico can't pronounce, or doesn't understand. And by the time the hour is up, we haven't done anything that I can document as therapy in my medical notes to show that I am ameliorating Rico's anxiety symptoms. What would really ameliorate Rico's anxiety symptoms is living in a home where he is not constantly worried that his dad is going to beat up his mom and that he's going to have to call the cops who will send his dad back to jail. But that's not happening. So he gets therapy. We unpack and set up the game. Rico and I look through and organize the cards together and agree that I will be in charge of the career cards and Rico will be in charge of the money. Rico picks his car, red, and places a blue peg in the car for himself. Later, he considers whether he will get married. 
He's not sure about marriage. He considers it, and we discuss reasons for or against. Rico tells me, if I have a wife, there will be a lot of yelling and fighting, and I don't like that. I agree that yelling and fighting is not fun, and when he grows up, he could have a wife that he gets along with. He seems skeptical. He decides that he will have kids, placing one blue and one pink peg in the back seat of his car, but decides to leave the wife out. He asks me why there are no dog pegs to go in the car. He thinks the kids would like a dog. I agree that dog pegs would be great, and we continue playing, choosing houses and gathering money as we spin the wheel and read the directions on the multicolored spaces. Rico comes across something called promissory notes, and we discuss what this might be. He determines that it must be kind of like a library card, but with money, and decides that he likes this. He wonders if he were to take the promissory notes from the game to the bank, if he could exchange them for real money. He'd like to give the money to his mom so she could buy the new car she's been wanting. Our car is all smashed up because of the accident my mom got in, he tells me. And I ask about his mom and whether she was hurt. No, she was just really mad at the guy who hit her. I note that it is really nice that he wants to give his mom money, but tell him that the Game of Life promissory notes would not work at the bank for real money because they are just for play. He looks disappointed, but not surprised. As we continue... Rico comes across a card whose content he does not recognize. He asks me, Zamira, what are stocks? He pauses tentatively before continuing, not wanting to look stupid. Are they like food stamps? Thank you, Zamira. Zamira, would you give us some background to the writing that you've done? Well, a little bit of background. Um, Before I became a therapist, I had a background in theater, and I was very much inspired by the book by Studs Terkel called Working, where he has everyday people tell their stories about what their working life is like. Some of this writing was both inspired by wanting to let people know about my own work life, working in community mental health, which was often very hard to talk about. Also that maybe there would be some benefit for that, those stories actually being out in the world in a way that was also protective and kind to the people whose stories I'd witnessed. Can you tell us a little about the the kind of work you did and the context you worked in and the kind of situations you encountered? 
In short, I was working for a program that served um, children and families who were on Medi-Cal in Alameda County in Northern California. And all of those children had to have a DSM-4 diagnosis in order to be eligible for our program. So it was pretty common that like a lot of foster youth would be coming through our program, a lot of um, children who were living in pretty much in, in poverty or like working poor families. We would do work in the schools and in the homes and pretty much wherever was needed for us to show up. A lot of the kids had behavioral problems, had a hard time concentrating. And what I started to notice was when we'd like get past the symptoms and diagnoses of, you know, like little Joey is, you know, throwing chairs <laughs> when he gets mad about his math test or, you know, isn't doing his chores at home or, you know, is crying a lot or has trouble making friends. What I would discover when I talked to parents, caregivers, grandparents, teachers, is that there was this pattern of multi-generational trauma that like it was just kind of getting passed down. And like when I talked to parents in particular, if I could, they, you know, I discover that they had had these heartbreaking, you know, difficult situations or like really rough things happen to them. Um, one thing I want to say is that all names and identifying information has been changed to protect their identities. So the stories are a little bit more of a pastiche in that they're not one one person's story, but a few people's stories sort of mixed together. Your reading really makes me feel uh, some of the sadness that's involved in that situation and being so close to a little kid. Um, talking about some of the suffering and what it can be like in poverty and what it can be like for those of us in community mental health to witness this and wonder about how to respond. It just, it stands out to me that I haven't heard something like this before. Yeah, and there's, there's a certain comfort in and having it be put into this form of literature and having this, this aspect of the work portrayed because we're so surrounded by, you know, filling out forms and checking boxes as a way to communicate about this work. What was your intention in, in writing it? It's a great question. I think my intention in writing it was fundamentally for me because I needed to have a place to to put this experience. I do have an agenda, which is like I, w I want people who don't do this work or know anything about this work or who have kind of a concept of, you know, what the lives of working poor families are like from reading the paper or, you know, contributing to various nonprofits, you know, donating money or food or whatever. I wanted to put a face on that, like from the inside to actually let people know what it looked like. Also, I didn't know how to make sense of this experience, you know, like that was something that never occurred to me to even think about, you know, like not knowing the difference like that 
the way that this child, you know, made this statement about stocks and food stamps, I was like, I had no way to answer that question. It was so much bigger of a question than he intended. And it seemed to me that the only way to make sense of it was to make something else with it, you know, to make something that that was creative. We have these laws and rules about confidentiality, which are there for a reason and they're important. But it doesn't take up the question of how this work actually affects the people doing the work. You know, and if you look at teachers who work in, you know, low-income schools or things like that, a lot of these teachers have these nuanced relationships with the kids and families that they work with. You know, they'll drive the kids home from school or they'll, you know, be able to go to a baseball game or um, to engage in these other social ways that give them a way of making sense of, you know, the sadness that they sometimes see and experience. And as therapists, we kind of don't have that. There's like this thing of like, oh, you're supposed to do your self-care. But like nobody really gets into like, what what does that actually mean? What is it like to be encountering folks who are struggling so hard day in and day out and to be in the role of maybe being somebody who can give the answers and like, not actually not having any answers, you know, because the problems are much bigger than us. My intention was like to find a place for me to put these experiences so I could look at them and maybe understand what to do next, whether it's in terms of my work as a therapist or just my work as like a human in the world. Because I think this is where we are right now as we're like reaching a crisis point with income inequality and like all this stuff. Everybody's just like, what do we do? (laughs) You mentioned, you know, the responses by other folks when you talked about your work, people validating how hard it must be and how you're a good person or relaying in the TV show intervention or just this kind of blank stare. Mm-hmm. And, or else people talking to you about the importance of self-care. What was kind of the effect of, of, the, of that response from other community members when you tried to talk about your work? Mm. Well, it's very distancing because it, it puts the responsibility all on me, right? You know, like, well, you're choosing to go in and do this really hard thing, so you're better than most of us, and, you know, therefore you need to also do all these other things because you're making a choice. And, like, I don't really see it as making a choice, you know? I mean, I certainly there are choices, but, like, I got into this because it was kind of like, this is what needs doing right now, you know? This is an area where there there's need. And so when, when I hear people kind of put it back on me, it kind of just doesn't make sense to me. I'm like, well, but this is a social problem. And like, that's why I wanted to like, I'm trying to figure out a way to write about this stuff in a way that's both palatable for those who don't know it from the inside, that they don't just get like so 
depressed by it because I think that's what was happening at the cocktail parties, right? It's like, I'm just being honest telling you, like, this is what my job is like. And people are like, oh, um, wow, I'm not having fun anymore. I'm going to go talk to somebody who does something more fun, right? And that, that wasn't the response I wanted. I was like, I, I want people to know what's going on. That I feel like that's my current challenge with trying to figure out how to write this work in a way that people can hear it and not just want to distance themselves from it. That we're all stewards of the world, right? Our friend Elijah Nella has recently been um, doing some research around self-care and trauma and um, talking to people, different people around the world about some of their experiences. And one of the highlights I I got from reading what what he's put together was that sometimes people in this work, they have like a worldview shift that's not mirrored by the other people around them. Mm. And I think some of this work where we might be crossing class differences and working in different communities and the ones we might have grown up with, some of our worldview might change and the people around us don't have that experience. Mm-hmm. And that can be, like I said, distancing or, or alienating. Mm-hmm. I've, I've read about white Anglo-Saxon Protestant dominant worldviews around being a, an individual and if you just try hard enough, you could succeed no matter what and ignoring the larger context. And um, that doesn't really hold, I think, if you get close to working with like the working poor it's harder to sustain that belief that if oh if everyone just tried hard enough things would be great and it's all about personal effort i wonder what it's like for those people at the cocktail party when they hear something that might be challenging to their worldview mm-hmm. you mentioned that it was important for you to do this work it feels like it's work that needs doing and if you could say something about how how it did kind of influence your worldview since when you started the work i think Going into it, you know, I had this very conceptual idea about social problems and social justice and these kind of big things like poverty and racism and, you know, income inequality. And like, I had a, a hope or an aspiration that, like, if I could go in and I could be like conscious enough and, you know, attentive enough and, you know, really ask the right narrative questions and all of this that, like, I would be able to make change, you know? And I think that, not to discount the work, I think it is genuinely important work and I think it does make change, but what I didn't realize until I was on the inside was how huge these problems were and how the tools of therapy were so limited and therapy and case management and like access to resources and like, you know, all, all of the stuff that folks in community mental health do, it was so small in comparison to the problems, you know? 
I've always been somebody who's super interested in people. And I had friends when I was in grad school who like, you know, became lawyers and were like wanting to do policy work. And I was like, oh, how boring, (laughs) you know, like I had no interest. And then I saw like, oh, wow. Like, you know, I could work my whole life. I could work myself to the bone. I could like run myself ragged and I wouldn't have made a dent. And that was the thing that really I didn't know, you know, going in with all this idealism, that whole idea that you're talking about, right? That like, well, with enough, you know, like willpower and stick-to-itiveness and, you know, human effort, the American dream is achievable. That leaves out all the obstacles, like everyday obstacles, there is actually a difference. And like, I didn't really know how big a difference that was. Like, I didn't, I thought I was aware of my privilege. And then I thought like, wow, just, just the fact of being able to like, expect that there would be like food every day in your house. Or that you'd wake up with a parent there who could, like, get you to school. Like, all of those things. Oh, well, no, it's it's not. It's not even, it's so deeply uneven that that whole conversation kind of needs to get thrown out the door. Thinking about, you know, throwing that conversation out of the door, like, are there questions that you wish more people were asking? on these social issues what comes to me when you say that is just less certainty and more curiosity like on a on an individual level you know and I think of this story a friend of mine told me who was on the board of an inner city farming project they got all this funding and they did all this fundraising to like build this like urban farm that in a community where there was a food desert and you know all these people did all this work and they finished the farm and you know started trying to you know distribute the produce and folks in the neighborhood weren't coming to where they had set it up and they didn't understand why because they thought they'd done all their research and you know that this was a desirable program And then what they figured out from talking to people in the community was that the place they'd chosen was on conflicted game territory. So nobody was going to walk into that zone to get some lettuce (laughs) and risk their life. And it's like this fundamental, like, not actually getting curious about the conditions that that people are living in and like what they actually need and you know making all these assumptions and you know that nonprofit they lost a lot of money on that project I do believe that they you know once they found that out they found a different location and they did a better job to like engage community members in the planning process it would never occur to you if you didn't live in an environment of daily violence to worry about location in that way right you know and that's that's what I think we need is like sitting down with people and I think it's so hard for folks who have these aspirations to do you know good work like it's actually really hard for them to be face to face with 
the incredible disparity and difference. Like it's hard for them to sit with people long enough to like develop a relationship, to get to know them so that people feel comfortable enough to actually tell their concerns, you know? And it's like, I'm going to help you, but I really want to keep you over there to make sure it like, I never have to think that I could be in that position, you know, like this like active distancing. And that's, I mean, I think that's the thing that, like, as therapists, we're trained to to do is, like, to figure out how to, like, really be with people and develop relationship with them and, like, let go of our judgments. And, like, I wish that those tools could be being utilized more outside of therapeutic settings because I think it would be really, you know, we might see that these programs would be more effective. Now that you've done this... Uh writing do you have other ideas for either how you might like to circulate it to a wider audience or other projects involving writing or things that you're thinking about Mm -hmm. from here so i have a series of stories that i've been working on which this is one of them and there are quite a few more so i'm i'm hoping to figure out where those might be best received both in support of other folks doing this work and like wanting to let people know more about about this work and you know I I have lofty hopes that that could be like at some point maybe a book or maybe a maybe a series of vignettes or that maybe there could be be some platform or forum for this kind of sharing to be out in the world. I don't, I don't know exactly. Um, <laughs> I'm certainly open to ideas if people have ideas for me about that. But I want to keep telling the stories and telling them in a way that they are hearable and not so heartbreaking that people can't listen one of the things I hope comes through in this story was that there's some joy there too and there's some playfulness and there's this like sweet sort of interaction with this young person who like I'm never gonna see again that like I want that to be seen too that it's not all doom and gloom I think one of the things that helps people best is having other humans to connect with and wherever they are, you know? how your intention was part of your intention for this writing was for yourself and as a way to make sense of your experiences in community mental health what difference has it made to do this project and mm-hmm. complete it and to write about it how has that changed your relationship with your community mental health experience mm. it's a good question i'm not sure actually i think that's still 
emerging. I mean, I think in the short term, getting to write it and work on it and rework it and, and get different people's responses on this piece, at least, it gave me some perspective. You know, my hope is that's going to fuel my future work. I'm not currently working in the community mental health field. Um, I'm currently in private practice and I struggle with having a lot of guilt about that. Like, did I just like give up the fight and, you know, it was too hard or something. But I, th- I think that writing about these experiences will maybe help me decide how I want to go back to it and like what, where I want to be helpful not. I'm not somebody who knows anything about policy work, but I do feel like in a in a call to action sort of way, I feel like that is where reform needs to happen. Like it needs to be on a much broader scale. I think it's also helped me make sense of that period of my life. Just being so in it, you can't see it and having a little distance. Like, oh, that that was happening and other any aspects of this writing or talking about community health, mental health or, or policy that that we haven't touched on that you'd like to talk about? I guess I want to say something about the relationship between like making art and creativity and doing this work. You know, I had a background writing and doing theater and stuff like that. So I came in with a lot of creativity and a lot of energy towards that it's really important to find ways of metabolizing these experiences for all of us as therapists and finding creative ways and figuring out a way to do that that isn't just in isolation and I think that's like if I have a hope with this work is that some at some point I can put it out into the world and keep trying to put it out into the world and that people beyond just the people who know will hear it and it'll have a life beyond just how it relates to my field. I feel like we're in such a time when like everybody's in their own little pocket with their own little language. We don't actually know what other people are up to. And I think making art or like telling stories is a way that we connect to other people's experience. So like that's what I want. And so I'd like encourage anybody who's doing this kind of work to like make art about it and not just have the art be for you. Well, you mentioned your private practice work. Can you say a little bit about that and about how people could contact you and get more information? Uh, I have a website, which is new-narratives.com. And I have a private practice in Berkeley, California. And I work actually a lot with interns and trainees coming into the mental health field, particularly those who are starting their practicum work doing community mental health and helping them navigate the the complexities of that and sort of the dissonance between the training they get in grad school and their experiences in the field. My phone number, if you wanted to contact me, is 510-463-4809. And I also do parent consultation 
I'm certainly open to if folks beyond just mental health are interested in some of this consulting about needs and communities and like how to how to engage people in in good dialogues well thank you very much samira singer for making art and also making it public so we can learn and and join with you and as i know for myself it does feel very resonant with some of the things that i've seen and working to metabolize appreciate that and it's inspiring me to keep making art and keep making it public and circulating it and finding ways to make this stuff accessible beyond people who study narrative therapy. So thank you very much. Thank you for interviewing me. I really appreciate your commitment to continuing creative projects. Thanks, Will. started the show off with the sounds of a northern cardinal which I got from the Encyclopedia of Life under the Creative Commons license. The idea of putting animal sounds at the start of the show comes from Derek Jensen's podcast called Resistance Radio and music of this episode comes from DJ Lang 59 with Garden of the Forking, Nick Bomarito with Better Than Way Too Post Rock, CDK with Pensive Tumbling Down, B.O. Crew with Around the Corner, and Kadir with Quell the Guilty Heart that we're listening to now. All the artists generously put up their music under the Creative Commons license. Thanks for listening.